We just sang uh, Psalm 51. Um, sometimes Christians use what's called the Psalter, um, putting the Psalms to more contemporary uh, lyrics and, uh, and rhythms. Um, so that was a, an introduction to our text. Our, in just a little bit, we're going to begin with just reading verses 1 through 6. Uh, but before we do, let me um, give a little bit of personal background, if I can speak anecdotally uh, about the, the theme for this morning. Uh, you, you notice that we've been singing about, praying about repentance, uh, confession. Uh, and if we can zero in on the word repentance here for, for a moment, um, let me just begin by saying that it's, a, it's kind of a funny word um, with a very broad range of meaning uh, depending on your background, depending on uh, where you are in your relationship with Jesus. And uh, my own background, you know, along the way, my understanding of that word and what it means uh, has evolved. So, for instance, when I was in high school and before I was following Jesus, before I was part of the church or knew the Bible at all, I, I, I knew the word repentance. Uh, but for me, it was, um, it was a very, it was just a strange word. It was weird. Um, it was, uh, uh, you know, I learned it from examples of street corner preachers who seemed angry uh, or religious fanatics. Uh, and so the, the word for me had a negative connotation in high school. And then in college, uh, I went to James Madison University. Uh, God was, you know, sort of grabbing me by the scruff of the neck, saying, all right, this way, son, you know, let's go, and showing me the, the glory of Jesus. And through InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, which was a, a campus fellowship group I was a part of as a student, there was one Saturday they were doing a, a, like a discipleship workshop, a leadership training thing, and the title was curious to me. It was called Repent or Perish, and, and that got my attention because, again, it was, the word repent had this negative connotation for me, but I, but I like these people, so why are they talking about repentance? This is weird. Uh, and much to my surprise, that Saturday morning, I learned that that phrase, repent or perish, um, really did not originate with uh, religious crackpots. It originated with Jesus. Uh, so unless you consider Jesus to be a religious crackpot, uh, it was, you know, it was a, a new way of looking at the word repentance for me. Uh, and it became a very positive thing, a very beautiful thing. Because uh, through that class and through uh, other means, I was learning that repentance is the gate through which we pass into the kingdom of God. Uh, one Arthur uh, Richard Lovelace puts it this way, repentance, um, which means basically having this new mind uh, about God, changing our minds, ourselves, and, and, uh, and our view of God, is the most dynamic inrush of the kingdom within ordinary history. You get that? That repentance is the most dynamic inrush of the kingdom of God in ordinary history. When we repent, we enter the kingdom and the kingdom enters history in a little larger measure because you enter the kingdom and are a part of history. And so to the degree that you and I, through repentance, enter the kingdom, begin living out that kingdom, we are one more piece of the kingdom puzzle being put together here on earth. Um, and people get a better view of it. Uh, so that was college where, okay, good, I, I get repentance now is how... I enter into the kingdom and how I, I begin a relationship with Jesus. And it wasn't until later on after that, after getting married, after going to seminary, 
Um, I was on staff at Covenant Presbyterian in Harrisonburg, and I was one of the pastors there in charge of assimilation and outreach. And I was on a team of pastors, and one of the pastors, Bill Leach, um, was, uh, uh, he's now the pastor of Christ Presbyterian, another church plant um, from our mother church in downtown Harrisonburg, and I learned something very valuable from him. He kept talking about repentance as the ordinary Christian experience. And I went, now, wait a minute, I thought repentance was this way that, that unbelievers become believers and non-Christians become Christians. And while that's true, you know, Bill was pointing me and the rest of us, um, you know, the whole church for that matter, to the reality that, that Martin Luther, for instance, you know, going back to some of our church fathers, and we'll be um, looking at the, the Protestant Reformation really in depth this fall, more, more on that to come. Uh, but Martin Luther, for instance, when he wrote out his list of, uh, of protests, so to speak, about what was going on in the church in his day, uh, the very first thing that he you know, put, the number one on the, on the list of 95 theses was this, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. That the, that the, the, the average Christian would, is a repenting Christian, that the the, the community of Christians, the community of, of Jesus is a repenting community. And so that's not just the way that we enter the kingdom of God, it's a way that we experience the kingdom of God through this ongoing combustion cycle of repentance and faith, repentance and faith, repentance and faith. And that's how we grow in the kingdom. And my understanding of repentance continues to grow, uh, hopefully yours is too, and uh, uh, and so what we're going to do this morning, uh, by virtue of Psalm 51, is we're going to look at the nature of repentance, the necessity of repentance, and then the goal, uh, the real goal of repentance. So if you have your Bibles open or your bulletin, uh, please stand in honor of God's word. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin, did my mother conceive me? Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for um, this window into the soul of, uh, of one of the patriarchs. Uh, thank you for how these are not just David's words, but they can be our words. And that we pray you would send your spirit to, uh, to lead us in repentance and renewed faith, that we would continue to grow as disciples and experience more and more of your kingdom uh, through the gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So uh, I'm going to steadily work through uh, the remainder of the psalm, most of it. Uh, but by virtue of these first six verses, let me, let me make a couple of observations. So the first thing to notice is that David is confessing 
is sin. It would sort of seem obvious, I guess, but, but it's important to, to recognize. Um, the context here, as you'll notice, in the, the, there's a little introductory sentence if you've got your Bible open, and it, it says, you know, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Uh, and if you remember uh, from uh, your Sunday school lessons or, you know, home groups or whatever, the, uh, the, that episode, that dark episode in the monarchy of David when um, he committed adultery with Bathsheba um, and presumably uh, was lying and manipulating and entrapping her. Um, we don't know if she was an accomplice and to that or if she was seduced or possibly raped. Um, regardless, she is uh, pregnant as a result. And David's solution to the pregnancy is to bring her husband Uriah back from the front lines of the battlefield uh, to enjoy a respite, a reprieve uh, from the fighting, enjoy his wife, enjoy the pleasures of marital life. Uh, and, and strangely, Uriah says no to those comforts and instead insists he sleep at the gate um, because why should he enjoy the pleasures of being at home when his brother's are still, you know, uh, in danger and at war. And so he is uh, expressing his solidarity with them. David's plan, obviously, to cover up the pregnancy cannot uh, come to fruition. And so David's solution is to have Uriah placed at the very front lines of the battle where hopefully he will be killed. That's exactly what ends up happening. Uriah is a casualty in that battle, and now David... He's not only an adulterer, but he's got blood on his hands and so on. So Nathan, the prophet, comes in to David. Now, there's an intentional play on the words here in this introduction. David had gone into Bathsheba. It's a polite way of expressing he had sex with her. David goes into Bathsheba, and Nathan comes in to David to read him the riot act. He comes into his throne room. He comes into his court. And says, David, you are the man. David, by the grace of God, expresses his repentance rather than gets, you know, bowed up and self-righteous uh, and defensive. And he, through the words of Psalm 51, we get a window into his soul, into his confession. And what's beautiful to recognize is that he's actually owning his sin. He's not blowing it off. He's not deflecting. He's not, you know, <laughs> he's not blame-shifting. Uh, he's not blaming, you know, uh, Bathsheba. He's not blaming Uriah. He's not blaming Nathan. He's not blaming his parents, uh, as we're prone to do. He's not blaming his brother or his sister. Uh, he's not blaming the kid in the seat next to him on the bus or in the classroom. Uh, you know, he's owning his stuff. And it's hard to read, but it's really refreshing at the same time. Uh, we furthermore read how he's being honest. He talks about things like transgressions and iniquity and sin. He's not talking about misinformation and regrets and mistakes. He's, he's, he's being upfront. Uh, it's been said there's really two kinds of people in the world. There's sinners and there's repenting sinners. And that's really it. And we live in a world and a culture where nobody wants to confess their sin. Nobody wants to admit, yeah, I messed up. I was wrong. I sinned. Please forgive me. Instead, 
you know, we make excuses or we blame or we just try to cover it up. And instead, there's only two kinds of people. You're either a liar or a repenting liar. Um, you're either um, sinning uh, sexually or you're repenting of your sexual immorality. You're either greedy or you're repenting of your greed. I mean, there's just, there's nobody who's innocent. Uh, and so it's a fallacy to pretend like I don't have anything to repent of. Uh, and so it's really wonderful to see David's honesty. What, what is also refreshing is that David knows and recognizes the promises of forgiveness to those who are honest. To those who confess iniquity and transgression and sin, um, David is thinking and reflecting on when God revealed himself to Moses. And in that revelation out of Exodus 34, when the Lord passed before Moses, God proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. You hear those themes, mercy and steadfast love, and faithfulness. David's basing his confession on what he knows about God, who God is, and how he's revealed himself to his people. That God keeps steadfast love to thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin but who will by no means clear the guilty and who will by no means clear the unrepentant. So David is confessing, he's being honest, and, and I, I guess it's worth pointing out too, it may be um, superfluous, but it's important to recognize David is praying. That means, that means he's addressing God. He's, he's certainly sinned against Bathsheba. He's certainly sinned against Uriah, and we would, one would hope that he's had a conversation with Bathsheba. I think we can, can rest assured he probably did. Apart from that, though, David is not simply trying to make peace and make amends and patch together you know, the pain uh, horizontally. He understands that the, the primary breach, the primary problem is a vertical problem, that, that all sins you know, uh, fundamentally at the root are sins against God. And he knows that he needs God's pardon more than any other pardon uh, that there is. And so it's really good to see uh, that he is praying to God, addressing God and doing business with God as he confesses his sin. Uh, look further now with me at verses 7 through 12 where he's saying, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right or a steadfast spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold, a, with, uphold me with a willing spirit. Um, it's more about the nature of repentance is that you see it's re it, that repentance is relational. That what David wants is his relationship with God restored. I mean, he's praying, cleanse me, wash me, make me white as snow, you know. Um, so he's feeling guilt, he's feeling shame, and, and yeah, we don't want to feel those things. But those are a means to an end. I don't want to feel guilt, I don't want to feel shame, so that I can enjoy and have this closeness with God. You know, uh, Paul Tripp famously said, all sin is antisocial, meaning that when I sin, it's inevitably going to affect those around me horizontally. But it also affects vertically my relationship with God. It's, it's anti-relational. 
And so in order to have that closeness restored with God, um, I have to repent. David has to repent. You know, um, but you see when he uses words like hyssop and cleanse and wash, uh, the presence of God, the spirit of God, these are all uh, liturgical themes. They come from Israel's worship. Uh, they come from uh, the temple liturgy and the tabernacle liturgy. And uh, we hear this expressed all throughout the Old Testament. But let me, let me give you an indication uh, of what that's about through a summary in Hebrews in the New Testament uh, in chapter 9. Uh, it says that when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself, the, the book of the law, the book and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The point is that David wants to be reconciled to God and the way to have that reconciliation and to have restoration is through what's called atonement, at-one-ment. It's actually a word that was invented to express the dynamics of the gospel, that we would be reunited in our relationship with God, brought back into one-ment with him. And that only happens because blood is shed. The grace of God always comes to us with blood on it. And in the Old Testament, you can read all about the thousands and thousands and thousands of animals that were slayed to, to atone for the people's sin. And, and ultimately, when you get to the climax of the Bible in the New Testament, is that Jesus dies once for all as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Like it or not, what covers our sins is blood. And you can look at your sin and think, well, my sin's not that bad. What is Jesus doing on the cross? Or you can start with the cross and go, oh my gosh, Jesus was on a cross. What does that say about my sin? And the reality is, is that all sin separates us from God. David is feeling that separation. He's acknowledging it. Uh, he's not going through the motions. He's not checking the box He's praying, as you see in verse 17, jumping ahead. You know, he knows he has a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, and he wants restoration with God. He's sad and he's broken about how sin has affected that. Um, so our, our church fathers and mothers, um, 500 years ago, uh, 400 years ago, as uh, when, when the Westminster um, Confession and larger and shorter catechisms were written, um, they, the catechisms were a teaching tool helping you know, disciples understand what's in the Bible. And uh, the 87th question in the shorter catechism just says, hey, what is repentance unto life? What, what is repentance? What's the nature of repentance? And it goes like this. Repentance is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. It's a mouthful, it's a good summary, and you can break it down into pieces, but I hope what you've seen in the, the nature of repentance is that it's, it's fundamentally before God, it's honest, uh, it doesn't blame shift, and it, it, it does feel uh, remorse. It's not just checking a box and, you know, 
when we look at the further at the uh, at what repentance is, we got to move on to the necessity of it. Um, let me let me break away from Psalm 51 and talk about Luke 13 for a second. And and remember, I was talking about being a college student and going to this class called Repent or Perish, and how weird of a title I thought that was, sort of reinforcing some of the negative stereotypes of that word. Um, well, I, I learned something that day that. That, the, that, that call to repent, or that, that even that phrase, repent or perish, did not originate with you know, weird Christians or angry street corner preachers. You know, anybody can use that word, but, but what does it really mean? And, and how did Jesus use it? Well, let's head to Luke 13. There was some present at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate has mingled with their sacrifices. Pilate had slaughtered, you know, these, um, these people. And Jesus answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Meaning, does the punishment always fit the crime, so to speak? You know, are they getting their just desserts? And we knew all along those people were, were far worse than we are. Jesus answers, no, I tell you. But unless you repent, you all will likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. You go, wow, those are um, not the words we're used to hearing from Jesus. But we do need to acknowledge that Jesus, when he began his ministry, um, he began it with the same message that John the Baptist did, you know, Matthew 4. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The way to enter the kingdom of God is to repent. For those, you know, who were stubborn and hard-hearted, Jesus went toe-to-toe with them, and he was using hard medicine to invite them, to call them, Humble yourselves. Don't remain stubborn and hard-hearted. In Matthew 11, he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it would be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Another chapter later, verse uh, chapter 12, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He's speaking about his, his death and his burial, and then three days later, his resurrection. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is speaking about himself. And so Jesus, because of his mercy and his compassion, is not content to let people remain in their hardness of heart. And he's you know, going toe-to-toe with them, just like Nathan went toe-to-toe with David. Uh, it's a gracious warning. Um, you know, the oasis in the middle of all of this is this beautiful statement that I think most of us are familiar with. Well, you know, on, the, on one side are the woes to you, Chorazin and Bethsaida, and hey, look, the people of Nineveh responded to Jonah, and you're not responding to me. In the middle of that is this oasis where Jesus says, come to me. 
Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me. Come come away from all of the competition. Come away from the corruption. Come to me. Drop down your defensiveness. Drop your self-righteousness. Um, and experience life. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are meek. Blessed are those who are brokenhearted over their sin and who recognize their need to repent. I mean, that's, that's fundamentally it. Two kinds of people in the world. Those who are you know, going to remain in their sin and those who are going to repent of their sin. And Jesus is saying, blessed are those who repent. Yours is the kingdom of God. Come in. And if you haven't repented of your sins, if you haven't ever done that business with Jesus, close that loop with him. He is your savior. His blood was shed for you. You need to repent. And if you don't, you remain on the outside. Outside of the kingdom. Come in through the door of repentance. It's... um. There's something going on in the church that I've noticed, and, and maybe you've noticed it too, that I want to just say something briefly about. Um, you know, what's the number one concern or complaint against the church? Self-righteous hypocrites and all that, right? You know, um, that people feel like the church is insincere, the church isn't honest, the church, the church is fake. And, and so, um, sadly, I think, yeah, some of that, that we deserve to hear that, and we need to do a better job uh, of being transparent and honest and, and so on. But, but in the correction to that, uh, what I've noticed uh, in myself and in others, and I think we all maybe can address this in our hearts to some degree or another, is that in our, in our desire to be honest and our desire to, to not, you know, play the game and pretend um, we'll be honest and, and confess our sins or talk about our sins, but, but we fall short of actually repenting of them. We fall short of actually, you know, wanting to change. Um, you know, there's this popular phrase, make your mess your message. And, and that, that's, that's great if it's understood in, in the context of the gospel. It's not enough to just simply make your mess your message. Because in one sense, God doesn't want to hear about your disobedience. God wants to hear about your repentance. God wants to hear about how you're grieved over your mess and how you want to make a change and you want to live a life of a consistent disciple. Does that make sense? So in our effort, you know, uh, to, to make this corrective away from the, the pretending church, the, the church that wears a mask, the church that's self-righteous and, and so on, don't trade that kind of self-righteousness in for the error of worldliness and hypocrisy, saying that I'm a disciple of Jesus, but not living like it. Repentance is absolutely necessary. It's not optional. There's two kinds of people in the world, sinners and repenting sinners, but there are not two kinds of Christians in this world. There's only one kind of Christian. It's a repenting Christian. And those who don't repent are not a part of the repenting community. That's what the church is. I know they're sober words. I need to hear them as much as you do. So what are you repenting of?
Are, <laughs> are you repenting? Are we repenting? Um, let, me, let me back up and just ask, how, how exciting is your walk with Jesus? Um, how invigorating is it? Or, or, another way to ask that is, are you bored? Are you bored with Christianity? Are you bored with Jesus? Are, are, are you just kind of yawning your way along the disciples' path? If you are, I can, I'm 99% sure you're not repenting. Because when you and I are repenting, when we're living this life, this experience of ongoing repentance, what that means is that we are actively in the dynamic of receiving love and compassion and mercy from God. And that is invigorating. That is exciting. That is a, a life in relationship with God, and there's absolutely nothing boring about that. That does not mean that we just hang out on the mountaintop and every day is this awesome day. There are undulations, you know, clear, uh, high points and valleys and so on. Uh, and again, it's that ongoing cycle of repentance and faith. Yes, we grieve over our sin, and then we experience joy and grief and joy and so on. So what are you repenting of? Maybe, maybe it's perfectionism or, or passivity or just pickiness, you know. Is that what you need to repent of? Maybe it's, you know, nagging or negativity or just nastiness. Maybe it's your inconsistency or your unreliability or your irritability. What is it? And if you're not repenting, Jesus would say, Beware. Let's talk about the goal as we conclude. Um, and I, wanna, I want you to look at these verses with me and, and come to your own conclusion. Look at verse 8. David says, let me hear joy and gladness. Look at verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Look at verse 14. May my tongue uh, sing aloud of your righteousness. Look at verse 15. My mouth will declare your praise. What's the goal of repentance? What do you see there? It's joy. The goal of repentance is actually joy, um, which is really, really helpful because sometimes I think we get this impression that in order to be a really mature, godly Christian, you've got to be super serious and even, you know, uh, sort of gloomy and depressed about your sin all the time. And that's not true because the goal of repentance is joy in the Lord and having that rest, uh, that relationship restored, right? The goal of repentance is joy. Careful. The goal of repentance is not joy in getting to sin again. Uh, as if um, the gospel gives us license to have practice some kind of spiritual sinful recidivism. Um, that uh, we're looking for our joy in the world and what the world offers us. And so, yeah, I'm going to do penance. I'm going to feel bad for my sin so that I can have, you know, my slate wiped clean. And then I'm going to go get it dirty again. I know that happens. Nobody's perfect this side of heaven, um, but it's not something that we're just going to assume is going to be the case and we, we don't fight it. No, the goal of repentance is joy in the Lord, joy in our relationship with God. You can see that expressed by David here. That is what happens to us through the gospel as we receive God's mercy. The fun thing is to recognize that the goal of my repentance and the goal of your repentance also results in joy for God. Jesus said there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 other righteous people who feel no need to repent. Self-righteous people, right? 
So isn't that amazing to think that your repentance and my repentance actually brings joy to God? And there's a third group who, who gets to rejoice. It brings joy to us, joy to God, and joy to others. My repentance and your repentance brings joy to others. So let me put it this way. Back when I asked, what are you repenting of? Were you like, oh, yeah, what am I, what am I repenting of? Um, well, one thing you could do is to ask somebody else, what do others wish you would repent of? <laughs> That's your homework. That's your homework this week. Ask somebody that you trust, somebody who cares for you, somebody who's got your back, hey, what am I blind to? What am I missing? Where am I asleep at the wheel? What do you wish I would repent of? And guess what? To the degree that you and I can change, become more like Jesus, you know what's going to happen? They're going to rejoice too. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the grace of repentance. Thank you for giving us this welcome into your kingdom. Uh, would you please humble us? Um, help us to see that through um, a broken heart is actually the path to joy and love and peace. Uh, Lord, would you um, have mercy on our self-righteousness, our defensiveness, and our, our default mode, which wants to blame others. And Lord, would you help us to be honest with you and confess to you. Father, if there are any uh, here who have not um, confessed you as their Savior, I pray that you would give them the grace of faith and repentance to do that even today. And Lord, I pray for all of us that you would renew us in the ways that we can grow as disciples and that we can become more like Jesus. We pray for our church. Uh, we ask for you to minister to all of the saints here, but especially we pray for your grace and blessing upon the Apiza family for Tony and Emily and their kids, Zoe and Luke. And Father, we pray for Chuck and Shirley Bating that you'd uh, bless them and care for them while they're at, uh, over at Legacy. And we pray for Don and Lynn Bailey. Thank you for their ministry to this body and pray your blessing on them and, and your blessing on Stephen and Anita Becker and on uh, their kids Maggie and Henry. Bless them in their, uh, their recent move and, and um, help Anita with her um, torn muscle. We pray for others in our body who have particular needs. Thank you uh, that Bill Landis is even here worshiping with us this morning after... Uh, the minor stroke, and we pray for his full recovery and uh, for the treatment to, uh, to be fruitful. Thank you uh, for Linda Lindsay and the treatment that she was able to receive and pray uh, that it would be effective in ministering to her. Uh, thank you for uh, the comfort of the gospel to Elsie Frost, uh, to her daughter Gay, and the loss of uh, Gay's husband, uh, Elsie's son-in-law. And, uh, and Father, we pray for your mercy uh, to Nina Coleman, um, Lord, for Harry's daughter, and uh, uh, pray for your healing to her, and, uh, and Lord, that you'd also minister to her heart. Father, thank you for how your kingdom uh, comes to us uh, through the gospel. Thank you for how you call us uh, to also uh, be agents of your kingdom spreading and going forth. Thank you for those who've been on missions uh, this summer, whether to Guatemala or on individual um, efforts. We thank you that Josh Allen's back, that Ron Rocca is back. Thank you for the Elkins and the Woodworth families, uh, members of their families being back. Uh, I do pray for my daughter, Sarah, that you would bless her as she uh, ministers at Lake Champion and uh, pray for the gospel to be clearly heard and received by um, high school kids 
uh, from all over. Uh, we pray for Phil Smulin as he heads to Togo, West Africa, uh, that you would make his trip fruitful. And Father, we, uh, we just pray also, lastly, for these families who have kids and who are going through the transition of back to school, all the disruption that that brings. Help us to hold on to Jesus. Help us to believe the gospel and um, Lord, to trust you as you uh, bring us through another school year. Uh, thank you for a good summer, and we thank you for your mercies. We thank you for your provision uh, to each one of us as we give tithes and offerings. Please be honored uh, with the attitudes of our hearts, with generous gifts and, uh, and repenting uh, of the ways that we hold on to the things of this world. Lord, let us give them freely back to you. In Jesus' name.